0: hello everyone and welcome to a special edition of the sww show i'm mike and today i have two special guests to me who neither of them i thank god named aj i have both i want to hopefully get these names correctly because they're a little bit up north colin and robin is that correct that's correct Oh, phew, thank God. I was very concerned. The names can me very just concerned about pronouncing pronounce them correct. <laughs> so, the reason both of you two here today is talk about Museum of Other Realities. Um, you guys together, I think, are part of, what, it's More Museums, how you pronounce your studio's name? Uh, yeah, the
1: Museum of Other Realities, or the More, as we call it is a virtual reality art museum which showcases art from artists all around the world and you can visit it from anywhere there is a headset
0: so i think that's maybe actually a good place kind of start then is can you guys talk about like where did this idea come from because because on face value it's an idea that like i feel like Every designer's point has always been like, I want to make a museum in VR, but like, you guys found a way to actually do it in a very unique, and I feel like only a VR way because a museum could never exist.
2: Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head with the uh, comment on only a VR way. Um, you know, I feel like it is kind of an obvious idea to do art gallery in VR, but I think what separates us from what a lot of other people are trying is that we only show art that is made specifically for VR the way we approached it was maybe backwards from the obvious route where somebody thinks, oh man, it'd be great to do an art gallery in VR, then you could see the Mona Lisa from anywhere. Our approach was more from the, um, oh man, there's so much amazing stuff people are making with VR, we just need a way for people to see. So the Museum of Other Realities is dedicated specifically to art by artists who engage with VR, and so we don't show, you know, uh, you're not going to see any Matisse Valley sculptures or anything in there and uh philosophically we think that's a good idea because that stuff looks better in the real world and all the stuff we're showing looks a lot better in, in vr you can never do it way.
0: okay so on face value then to so like part of the whole like thing i know with you guys is like as you even point out like everywhere is like you like to support artists and like get artists around the world so how do you like like find these artists you like I want you in my museum or whatever
2: well in
1: some cases we will reach out to the artists uh, and in other cases more often than not it seems that these artists have networks of artists that they're in touch with and working with and if they have a positive experience with us then they tend to spread the word and invite other artists to our gallery and we kind of get to go from there a lot of the time so we're very fortunate to work with a huge number of talented people, and it's just kind of snowballed over the last couple of years.
0: That's that's very interesting. So, do you guys have like any of those like pieces that like on top of your head, You like start talking about this game of like w- like your favorite pieces you've seen.
1: Well, oh man, no, go take it away, Colin.
0: <laughs> I mean, I don't want to say anything is my favorite. We're showing
2: a lot of really good stuff, uh, we've got. Also, there's a bunch of stuff that we're not currently showing that I'm really excited about showing. Um, But we show a lot of amazing stuff done in uh, VR tools like Tilt Brush and Medium and Masterpiece. Uh, And so we've got currently, we're showing an exhibit by Danny Pittman, which is, we're showing a wing of Tilt Brush stuff by him, or a room of Tilt Brush stuff by him, and that kind of very colorful and pops a lot, and he's got a couple of creatures and then also um, some areas you can go. So one of them is called Night Snow, and if you imagine yourself in a surreal camping trip with uh, snow everywhere and, and trees rising above you and kind of a, a crackling fire represented by a sphere, what Night Snow was like, and then we're also showing some newer stuff by Danny Bittman. That was all from 2017. We're showing some 2019 stuff by Danny Bittman, uh, which he did uh, not even uh, have what, what the new Danny Bittman stuff. Uh, Danny?
1: Gravity sketch.
2: Yeah, yeah, he's been working a lot in gravity sketch. And so that is a, also a lot of uh, creature and environment work. And kind of a companion piece for Now in there is um, kind of a a candy land island filled with uh, bright trees and uh, rolling hills and grasses. And both of those pieces, it's really hard to experience without getting inside them. We let you, um, one of the things we do in the museum is instead of just walking around and looking at landscapes, you can, so we use teleport to get around as well as a linear motion. But if you teleport inside of this, you can go down inside it and be part of it. The, the, his um, kind of earlier self-rush, dark camping spot and his newer kind of candy rolling hills, so uh, really popular when you get down. Hey,
1: Colin, to... I think you might want to scooch up a little closer to the mic there. We're losing some of what you're saying. Oh,
2: uh, okay.
0: Or maybe it's just me. I, I, this sounds I, pretty good. I was about to say, I think it was mostly, but yeah, I definitely, as you can tell, we started like, whee! That's always the greatest thing, always, when you have to get used to a mic next to you, you you're like, where does the mic be? And then you naturally, you just start leaning back and sitting. And
1: Well, usually it's on her face, which makes life easy, so it's a little more complicated <laughs> but, when that's not the case.
0: But no, that's very interesting. I do appreciate, like, how much, like, for example, there, like, you can tell you guys actually, like, really care about the artists you bring on board for this stuff, too. And, and that's kind of even, like, face value when I was first seeing you're, you're the game, and I was like... It's very interesting, this, like, it's not like the concern always when you have these kind of museums is, you just kind of like, like my dream joke VR museum is, I want a museum of all every old prop that got used once in a video game, just to see this absurdness of like, what never gets reused again, and, but like, this feels like you guys hand-picked almost like, every little thing, and it, you still made it feel like an art museum. So I've got to ask them, do you guys have like, some major inspirations in the, like, museum's kind of like you went to growing up or recently that like you kind of wanted to model this after? Uh, I
1: would say that what we're doing with the, the more is different from really any real life museum, but there are a number of museums that we admire. And Personally, I enjoy the Vancouver Art Gallery right here in our city, but I'm also a fan of the SF MoMA uh the tate sachie gallery is doing some really cool stuff right now there's a whole lot of uh inspiring work being done out there
2: yeah definitely the vancouver Arc gallery for us is touchstone since we spent so much time in it and the, the confidue in paris is modern art showing things in interesting ways that
0: So, was there ever, like, a moment, so, like, obviously, the whole thing is, like, it, it feels, like, in the art you guys present is very, like, I think, modern and, like, this kind of, like, very abstract art nature. Was there ever a moment where you almost wanted to, like, start making the stuff less abstract? Because, I, th- I think, at least inherently, when you start abstracting the art, you gain a certain segment, but I almost wonder if you lose a bigger segment, because who doesn't know what they're looking at?
1: I or think we can... No, you go ahead, Colin.
0: Uh,
1: I think we try and strike a balance between being challenging and engaging and also accessible. And I think we do a pretty decent job of that. A lot of what we're showing has layers. So we hope that people are able to get something from it, even if they don't unlock everything that it is and all the ways it can be used. And we also try and provide a space for pieces which can be enjoyed more thoroughly if you're reading the write up or speaking to the artist, but can also be enjoyed uh, in a very accessible and surface level sort of interaction, I think would be that's what we strive for with most of what we show. I I think it's
0: that's very interesting. So now I kinda wanna jump into so now we have a general piece of the game, I kinda wanna jump into kinda like the harder stuff of, of it, which is which to me is like you guys to begin with are an early access game. And I think inherently your early access and your VR game, which has obviously inherent challenges to it, I think the first thing I kinda wanna start with is were you guys concerned with almost like the stigma of early access, where it's not just a like game's incomplete, it feels like early access recently have started had the stigma of like Oh, it's not like even a game, it's like this not done stuff and how do you guys kinda like try to push away from that?
2: First, early access is just a really obvious it's just it was really obvious for us to go with early access because the museum isn't like video game or finish it and uh,
0: uh
2: and conference so every month
0: we do. Hey, cu- if you don't mind how if you'd lean forward just a little bit again.
2: Oh! <laughs> wait, is, is this the mic it's using?
0: I yes. think that's the mic
2: you're using. That's the mic. <laughs> oh, my apologies. No, fine. i been using the wrong mic like, the whole time. The
0: restaurant was able to hear fine. <laughs> I was like, wait.
2: All right, all right. Uh, oh, yeah, early access. So, early access just makes a lot of sense for yeah. us. Uh, since the museum is going to be growing forever, we'll always have monthly shows. Um, there's no. Kind of goal of completion for the museum so for us early access is kind of more of a label than it is um if you will like it's always going to be growing over time and right now we don't think it's it's quite what we're willing to call 1.0 um playing. Uh, yeah, I mean, we're always going to grow over time. We don't think, you know, we're not willing to put a 1.0 on what we have right now. We think it's a little small. There's like features that aren't in place, our multiplayer isn't where it should be. And, you know, Early X is just a really great way for us to get feedback from uh, visitors and grow over time with, uh, you know, a base of people that are willing to be engaged part of the process, rather than people who are just looking for, say, a quick fix.
0: So you almost inherently then, feeling like early access is the best way, almost in modern times, this a game as like a lot, li- not a live episode but almost that mindset, But you think early access is the only inherent label for that?
2: I mean, I think anything labeled as a beta, you could run it yourself. Um, you know, a lot of our friends run their own betas, either privately or externally um early access on steam just has a lot of uh a lot of infrastructure support for it so it makes it really easy for us um you know we're not looking to do another advantage for us over early access in terms of um marketing and money matters is unlike a typical game we're not looking to have kind of a massive first week and then expect to see trails sales Slide off over time. We expect things to grow month to month, so we don't think there's that same risk inherent in early access that kind of a one and done video game would.
0: Hmm. Okay. Because it's, and I think I think maybe it's more recently, and I feel like we've seen the last couple years where, like, that's my immediate concern to early access stuff is that like. Is this gonna even like work out of the box and i think another thing kind of jumps is like so you guys are also obviously a vr game and i think we can all agree because i do enough development my some stuff too where i go vr is a market like we all wish was bigger and like how many headsets are out there and how many people have multiple headsets so the next thing i want to talk about is so like so you you right now support i think it's the best way to call it, it's like the core what i call the higher end pc market so like Vive, Rift, and now Index, is, is there like a world you guys want where you can make this more like mobile friendly and start expanding that th- mindset Or you, because of like the bottleneck you're hit with this major market?
2: Uh, well, a couple of points to that. One, yeah, obviously uh, as VR developers, we appreciate that the market is still small and growing. Um, one point to that is that we are, we're here for the long run, so... We're here, we expect the market to grow over the next few years, and so we expect to grow with it. Um, And then point two, which is reaching other headsets. I mean, we are as excited about, like, Quest and the mobile headsets as anybody, and as big fans of them as everybody. So we're definitely looking in those directions. Um, We hope that will happen. Obviously, there's some challenges for us, the uh, art that artists are
0: Rendering. making
2: they tend to make with a high-end headset and so that it tends to be expensive to show um but there's always ways we can find to show stuff on on lower end headsets
0: yeah because i always picture like a lot of i feel like vr games like who started doing it you can always kind of tell when they make stuff for those like somewhat lower end of headset. you like you can tell it's the same game but like you kind of try to give it the, almost the mobile treatment is what we'd always look at it. Like the same idea. And I could see where you don't want to like, compromise the art, art vision at the same time.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's such the perfect way to put it. You know, I mean, for us, visual fidelity is the entire point of the thing. So we can't go taking stuff made for a mobile headset and then hoping that it will wow people in a tethered headset.
0: Okay. So also with the VR then... Was there every world where you guys looked in this and gone, well, maybe we should try to, like, see if this would also really work in 2D, too? is in your head this, like, physically only possible in VR, even if it's, like, you wouldn't want to release 2D because it's a lesser experience. Too much of a lesser experience.
1: Yeah, I don't think we're ever going to release a version on a flat screen. It's just not the same. And a lot of our creators aren't creating on a flat screen, so... You know, that's really what the museum is about, is uh, spatial computing and spatial understanding of the art. And I think that a lot of that is lost uh, if you port it to something else, which is not to say that other experiences don't work on uh, a flat screen. And there's been some really great examples of people doing cross-play. But I think for what we're doing, uh, at least for the foreseeable headsets, are where we want to be. Okay.
0: So I'm kind of curious as I wrap up this kind of like VR talk for a second is, um, what is there something that you guys feel is missing in VR right now that you think would massively help either your development or the museum itself?
2: I mean, I think the big things missing in VR right now are actually not hardware related. I think they're all software related. I've actually thought that since, like, last year since the Vive and the Oculus came out. I think that we have, like... Technologically, that's and tracking that is very compelling, and we just have to do a, a huge amount of design work to get there. There's a fantastic example of that. That it's, uh, it's a system seller. Everybody loves it because it's super well designed for VR and it works really in v- really well in VR. And that's one of the reasons we're doing the art galleries. That the people are really pushing. And interactivity in VR are artists trying these crazy things. So I think what we're missing is actually not hardware. I think it's a, lot, a lot of software people want to like just push it back on the hardware people. Because it's a, the
0: easiest thing to push them.
2: Out. Yeah, right. But I think it's actually us. I think it's just we need design work, honestly, is what VR needs.
0: So when you say design work, do you think it's more like the designers or design tools to help you with VR? So my example is like one of the great things I think that happened recently, like I think like a year ago or so, is like Unreal actually made their like developing in VR like actually work. So you could actually like level design straight in VR instead of jumping in and out, which helps a ton once you get used to it.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think those tools are what is going to unlock the designers. I mean, I absolutely agree with that. that. The easier it is for people to play and make interesting different compelling experiences the more those will get
0: like like i i kind of wish like like the idea of like they talk about like dreams is gonna be playable in vr and i'm like i wish that like that could that idea can just expand further out and what you could do with that kind of ideas in other games
2: yeah yeah i absolutely agree i mean dreams is a fantastic example like i expect that to be a really fertile ground for the kind of design work i'm talking about
0: Okay. So, coming up then, so you guys have been out now for a couple weeks uh, in early access, I believe. Yep. Is there anything looking at this complete early part of this game being completely out for everyone that you guys have, like, wish you realized sooner of, like, either stuff that you thought would work it didn't or, like, lessons you learned in these first couple weeks of early access?
1: Well, I think certainly we've learned... Uh... About some edge cases that we had no idea were going to manifest, and that's been incredibly useful. in Squashing a number of bugs. Um, we've gotten some really great feedback from people who are playing the game, and we're also able to point people who ask about the gallery to the public release, which is probably one of the best parts. Um, getting into our monthly cycle of shows, which has been a lot of fun. I would say it's been almost entirely positive, aside from, you know, a few gripping uh, moments sorting out mystery bugs, but, yeah.
0: Wow, that is... Sorry. I was going to say, I'm just saying, that's very impressive, I'm saying that, like, that, like, it was that positive. I feel like I've heard so many stories of, like, the exact opposite.
2: Yeah, we've also been working on the museum for over a year before we went to early access, um, just kind of quietly as a very small team. Uh, we got became a larger team just recently uh, in, the, in March. We've had a lot of private gatherings just with artists and a lot of artists in the space. So what you see in early access is actually a lot of iterative design already in it. So we've learned a lot of lessons. We have a lot of lessons still to go, but it's definitely... It might be a little more refined design-wise than it appears on the cover.
0: Okay. Great. I, so I want to, as we wrap up here, I want to thank you guys for joining us and talking about, the, I think this is a very interesting game, and I think this is a perfect example of, of the type of game that like VR was made for, and I think so far the execution has been really great, especially for how early on it's going. So as we go here, are there any last things you guys would like to tell the people about the museum of other realities and any amazing things
2: they could look forward to oh yeah i just want to talk about the artists that we're showing and the amazing people doing amazing work in vr it's like um you know it's like they're the point we're just an infrastructure to like let people see it and just uh you gotta come check out the amazing work people are doing because it's astounding
0: okay any anything else I, I think,
1: uh, Colin's pretty much said it all. If you're uh, an artist, an aspiring artist, or an art enthusiast, uh, please come check us out. MuseumOrder.com
0: Great, as you heard of it, it's Museum of... So, yeah, so... Muse... Well, we Museum... uh it's Museum of Other Realities on Steam, and you guys also have a Discord community?
1: We do, yes. Uh, which I... The exact name escapes me but i think we can get you the link to it uh here right after the podcast great i'll
0: make sure the links in the show notes below if you guys are interested again i think this is a very fascinating game and i'd like to thank you guys thank you for joining me for this fun conversation and i'll catch all of you guys next time goodbye everyone thanks very much bye hello everyone and welcome to a special interview of the sww show i'm mike this year again As we always like to point out, it's not AJ. We're all really excited about that. So could you please introduce yourself and
3: where you currently work? Hello, I'm Tony Wilson. I'm currently the owner, designer, coder, and pretty much everything at uh, Grindwheel Games.
0: Grindwheel Games. So I could detect your accent. So where are you out of exactly?
3: well i'm uh, from the uk uh, okay. i've uh, i was uh, over in poland for uh, for a couple of years that's actually where uh, i first launched the first version of the game but uh, yeah
0: so the the uk so okay so the uk if i correct me wrong it's like is the uk the one where it's like england part of way it's wales england part of ireland that's the uk one right was
3: that Britain? And Scotland, of course.
0: Okay, and Scotland, okay.
3: That's the one, the United Kingdom.
0: Okay. I'm an American. There are times when you start explaining <laughs> the different ways that England and Britain and the UK work together, and I just go, you all have the same accent, I'm good to go. <laughs> oh,
3: oh, no, no, we absolutely <laughs> don't have the same accent. You travel like fi- uh, five, five hours in any different direction, you'll find a whole group of people with different accents. Like just up here in the Northeast alone, you've got the, the Sand Dancers, which is roughly where I am at the moment. Then you've got the Geordies and the Mackhams, and then you get over into Scotland.
0: Oh, so I'm going to ask you then, as we get this started, then, can you, if I told you, like, I have an American accent, can you tell, like, regional differences, like how most Americans have a tendency not to tell your regional differences? Or do you just, does it sound just American to you?
3: Uh, vaguely, I mean, there's, there's obviously the extremely strong American accents, such as Texan or uh, that, that kind of Californian drawl that, that that was very popular in the 80s and 90s, the whole surfer stereotype thing. And then, of course, there's the um, there's like a bit of the uh, East Coast accents, that kind of uh, more more old-timey things. Using the you using same sort of slang, like here we say I as for yes and i believe that's a, a kind of a new england thing as well
0: wow you you understand american accents way better than americans understand any level of outside accents i'll give you that it's impressive <laughs>
3: <laughs> well thank you
0: so to start out then so let's start with the kind of like where you came from and like because you do a lot of this game so like what is your background and, and like where do you come from to have this like really good roundness of skills well
3: um essentially i started uh in games around about 2005 uh i'd trained my, my degree was in software engineering i didn't go directly into games because i thought you know that, that that's something that i wanted to do and had always wanted to do uh since i was very young but i thought no there, there's no chance you've got to have so much additional experience you've got to have Multiple released products. There's no way that's going to happen. So I went into software engineering as my main thing, expecting to work on uh, databases, uh, you know, g- general IT stuff and and coding. Hopefully, uh, joining joining some sort of uh, major company on on that level. Uh, but after I got out, um, the first major opportunity I had was to go work uh, for a company called Jagex, which makes RuneScape, um, and they were looking for software engineers who had a very gamey background, and I, I did. Um, basically, when we moved up here to the northeast from Yorkshire, uh, me and my brother got parked at one of the only games workshops that was open at that particular time. Where well, this is, uh, this is like mid eighties. Uh, so it was one of the few ones that was there. So since from that point onwards, uh, me and him we've been hooked into fantasy um, gaming, all of this kind of stuff, and uh, video gaming was something which. Really, kind of intrigued me because we didn't have uh, a computer ourselves for for a good chunk of time. We had an Amiga at one point, but uh, usually, what would happen was um, because these machines were so expensive and so valuable, they'd be brought home uh, from from schools where my because my parents were teachers. So uh, the BBCs, especially the back uh, those uh, the old green screen um, ones. Uh, had to be brought back, so it's kind of wow—the magic box, and you can play games on them, and it's it's amazing. So it was it was always kind of a dream uh, to get into that. So when Jagex offered me uh, the position, I went and uh, worked for them. Hmm. Uh, a little over eleven years, uh, working mostly on RuneScape itself. Wait, wait so you I, worked I, I on
0: RuneScape did... until like twenty sixteen?
3: Yes, that's right.
0: So, so this is the question. So I never truly believed it. So you're telling me there were actually people playing RuneScape in twenty sixteen, I thought that was just a meme on the internet.
3: Nope uh, I I'm pretty sure they're still playing it now. Uh,
0: and this is no offense. I just at a certain point I was like, every time I hear people say this, I go, Cause you know the majority of people, like, when you talk to them, like play it because like cause I love it as a kid, and I'm like, it's very interesting. Like, this is like the MMO that like Hits the nostalgia, and that's the reason it's successful compared to like a bunch of other ones. Where they go, we have to evolve. Spire. Runescape has this like base foundation of everyone grew up with it.
3: Yeah, and um, that's why uh, Runescape Old School was. Did you hear about that?
0: Yeah, I heard about that.
3: That's why that was so so successful. That basically took a two thousand seven branch of the code and put it on some servers, and people went nuts for it. But uh, no, um, the thing is that. You, you're probably still imagining it. If if you played it as a kid, uh, you're still imagining it. Probably pre-HD uh, graphics updates, all of this kind of stuff. So it's basically blocky men wearing square armor, flailing at each other. You know, there's been there's been updates to the code, and the, the fact that there have been continuous updates to not just the code, but the lore and the world. That that's one of the strongest things about it is, you know, compared to most MMOs especially the one that died over the period that, Jag- uh, that RuneScape has, has stayed alive, um, it's... Y- your your quests... It might have amazingly detailed background and lore, but your actual in-game quests are talk to a guy, get told to beat up 12 gold-dropping squirrels, and then come back to them. Hmm. Whereas ours are... You know, quest-wise, they're... I-, I think... I mean, obviously that's that's a bit of a stereotype, but this is kind of one of the things... Out there is that the the quest and the writing was so much stronger. There was a lot more characterization. Quests weren't just fetch quests. In fact, I think the only major fetch, fetch quest in the game, fetch quests.
1: Hmm?
3: Yeah, there's um. I think it's called one small favor, and it's it is literally you know you need to get an accordion. So you speak to the accordion guy. He says, "Oh, can you bring me some?" Uh, canvas and you speak to the canvas guy and they say oh can you bring me a candle and you speak to the candle guy and you go all the way around the world doing this and it's it's basically a parody of the kind of fetch quests interesting yeah so uh, yeah so effectively I worked there um, like I say for 11 years there was a brief stint where I was working on the sadly uh, sadly dead side project uh, Stellar Dawn which was going to be a sci-fi game um and then yeah after that uh, I went over to Poland for a couple of years to work for a company called Sparasoft who you might not you might not have directly heard of them I I don't know well um you probably have played some content that they've made cuz they're an outsourcing outsourcing company and they've got you know a a big name big name clients uh, across the board hmm. so uh, yeah I went out to work for them uh, specifically I was hired to work on uh, assassins what was Assassin's Creed uh, Odyssey uh, in a a quest uh, mission designer role. Unfortunately, that fell through. I've heard a number of reasons why why it happened, but basically they lost the mandate. So uh, after that, they took me on to the business development side of things. So I was uh, sitting down. I was meeting with clients. I was uh, reviewing products as they came in, saying, "Yes, this is something we can work on." And in the background, all the time, they were saying, "Okay, if we get this mandate, there's going to be design uh, roles attached to that. Maybe there'll be quest design. Maybe, maybe. there'll be system design. Maybe they will be combat design. But we've got to, you know, we've got to nail down the mandate." Uh, unfortunately, after two years, uh, that hadn't happened. So we decided, to very mutually that it was time to kind of call it a day because they didn't, they could see over this year that they weren't gonna be getting a design mandate. They just knew with the, with the work that they'd taken on at the end, of, uh, the end of last year that they weren't gonna be able to get that. So it made sense to kind of part ways to that stage. So, um, but in the meantime, uh, since the end of, since about the twenty I'd been working on uh, my own projects. Uh, I couldn't launch them, unfortunately, due to non competition clauses. But uh, yeah, at the moment. So uh, basically, I came back, uh, I set all my stuff up, uh, registered with the government, and uh, did all of the trademarking and all this other kind of malarkey, and then uh, launched my games as soon as I could. Wow.
0: That is. So that's. It's maybe it's the UK thing. So in my head, I was like trademark stuff. I guess you guys probably different copyright laws. In America, it's interesting because like our copyright law is very much like a, if you make a thing and release a thing, it is inherently yours, and then you only fight it if someone counters the thing apparently to like trademarking a game, unless there's like some unique IP well, no, vote uh, in the process.
3: Well, uh, I mean, obviously, pretty similar in that if somebody just starts making the uh, hunters journaling. Faded port, then I can kind of, kind of go after them for that, especially if they just, yeah, you know, that kind of stuff. But basically, I just want to make sure that uh, I wouldn't put it out there, and then suddenly uh, somebody else would say, "Oh, actually, I'm starting a company called Grindwheel Games, and I've got the the trademark. Please give me all of your intellectual yeah. property." Yeah, or uh, uh, there's 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 a certain level of paranoia to it, but uh, essentially, I just want to avoid. Uh, problems down the line because if I if I didn't do that and send it out there and it got really big and somebody came after me because I hadn't dotted all of the I's and crossed all of the T's I didn't want that to happen down the line you know that makes sense okay so it's, it's actually really uh, cheap and simple There's, you just go onto a website you pass through the, the stuff that you want to get trademarked it's a small fee and uh, then bingo a week later you've got your certificate hmm. that
0: is way easier
3: than it is here yeah, well, it's way easier than it was in Poland. I, I think I'm still waiting on the email from when I was trying to trademark stuff uh, in 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 Poland. <laughs> wow. Yeah.
0: So so then we're here then. So it's oh, let me get this right: the Hunter's Journals semicolon, Pale Harbor.
3: Pale, pale Harbor and uh, Vile Philosophy, uh, which went uh, live on Monday as well.
0: So that's interesting. So so it's these kind of like. So the games inherently aren't these super long things and if you're like subdividing them that quickly?
3: Yeah, well um, effectively to have a system where I'd be able to release a new game every year, because uh, when I started job hunting near the end of my stay at Jagex, uh, that was one of the things that I was getting back from, uh, from recruiters they were saying, um, you know, these companies are only interested in people who've got uh, you know yearly releases because that was the kind of mentality within the game industry mm. you know these these days um, having a long stint of service at a certain company would uh, see me a lot better because you know that everyone's going for live services the long ongoing long ongoing processes mm-hmm. uh, whereas back then it was very much um, you go to a company you bang out a game you go to another company you bang out that their their game for the year so um me me and uh, carlos the guy who uh, i worked with on these for the majority of it we we both wanted to work on a uh, on a project that would expand our individual cds make it easy to get work down the line and also maybe something that we could do as a, as a living ourselves mm-hmm. so we started out with a, a very advanced metroidvania idea and we went we don't have time for this. <laughs> and we, we 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 basically paired it back to he 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 had the time within his daily schedule to be able to do uh, chunks of 2D art, and I had time within my schedule to write a story and a game engine to uh, to to fit it. So uh, that's how we ended up with these uh, text adventures.
0: Nice. I think that's a good place to start it then. So the Hunter's Journal, then, as best we put it, is like the the series and everything sub from it all right so when me through actually i want to go first is a text adventure so obviously i know like we think of like there's the, the some of the novels tend to be decently i want to say it's niche but it's like a decently big niche i don't okay. know if i think thought of like journals and the way you're doing them as like a a, a genre and then be like a genre that's like of a decent size and note it's very interesting like Obviously, you found a way. I think to do it really cool, but I just I never thought of it like in that way as a genre to do.
3: Oh, well, uh, the thing is, I grew up with the old fighting fantasy books. Mm-hmm. You know, the the those game books. I mean, Christ, uh, they they were. A, quite a big chunk of my childhood um, so that w- that was obviously but I mean we again we kind of pared down and pared down and pared down at one point we were going to be viewing uh, actual visual novels but then we realized that we didn't have time to do all of the, the backgrounds all of the uh, different characters and you know all that kind of stuff so we then pared it down even further to we, we can have text on a page we can have UI elements that are moving around we can have still uh, art on, We can have a specific page art to, to have as a gallery, um, but we can't, you know, and so it, it kind of broke down to that. I mean, I had been, um, when, I were, when I was at Jagex, I'd uh, put forward the idea of taking a bunch of our quests and putting them on tablet in this kind of form, or in a more visual novel form, but that got that got shot down. Um, it, it was actually where I came up with a handful of the, the ideas that eventually went into some of the UI. Mm -hmm. But, uh, because, again, we we had phenomenal quests, people would want to play them, so, and there would be just little short things that you could do, you know, you sat on the bus, you've got your phone out, you've got your tablet out, you know, Kindle, but, you know, you've got something to do, and you can just read.
0: So you almost want to hit the, like, Kindle market, but, like, with gamers, is the best way, almost, I think, of putting it.
3: Yeah, I mean, um, there were various people suggested I try and put it on Kindle or Amazon, but uh, yeah, especially with this kind of game, it would be, you'd have to be scrolling up and down and jumping to page to page, which would uh, which would be inconvenient. Except if you had a UI for jumping specifically to those pages, at which point, mm. I might as well be on have its own game on uh, Android or, uh, in this case, PC for the uh, version with the voiceover.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, that's very interesting. So, So now that we're on that, then, and the genre part, then, so, the Hunter's Journal, so basically, so, the best, so you are Hunter, then, and then basically you kind of, like, go through, like, a relatively short quest, I want to say. It's, like, it's 40 page. it's, like, it's a little over 40 pages, but, like, when you're actively doing it, it's a different length than if I was I to say it's 40 pages. So, like,
3: kind of, so- yeah, go on. Yeah, I mean the 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 main critical path if you're going to hit the the good ending, uh, fifty odd pages. Mm-hmm. Uh, same with the uh, the the second one runs at about uh, 160 odd. The third one's around about 160 odd. The fourth one, which I've just uh, got the critical path done for that, is again it's pushing 170. So yeah, Ooh. it's, it's uh, depending how quick you read and uh, if you get the right answers, you know. It, it's, it's quite short. But then again, these old fighting fantasy books, and you know what you're doing, you breeze through them in half an hour. If you don't, you mm-hmm. can take several days of backtrack. If you're doing it legit, if you're not just sticking bookmarks in every page and jumping back to a bad decision and and reversing it like that, then it could take you quite a while. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, the, the short little, short little digestible uh, the self-contained stories. So...
0: So, I kind of want to joke into, like, the idea of, like, doing actions in kind of, like, the story format. So, obviously, we all think of, when I say you're doing action in the story format, we all instantly go to what was Telltale Games, I feel like. But you're doing this in, a, in almost, like, a more 2D form than they were ever doing it in. So, kind of, like, how do you get the player to, like, go back to the idea of, like, feeling like they actually, have, like they actually matter in this, compared to being just told a story?
3: Uh, I, I expanded this a bit more in the uh, second game onwards but yeah you um, are generally going to be affecting your statistics so if you make a choice that's going to result in say for instance accidentally killing a guy or letting a prisoner die or something like that then your skill is going to go down if you uh, make the wrong decision you're going to take a knife to the back and depending on how severe, severe the stab is that might be the end of your game Mm-hmm. Um, in the second one onwards there are uh, a lot more You know, I'm not going to say telltale-esque moral choices but there are situations which will significantly affect the game further down the line and you might not realise that at the time
0: mm-hmm.
3: yeah, it, it is a bit more um, 2D there's not like... Um, it's not like uh, say for instance it, it, it's not the length I've not taken say for instance that um, a whole dragon age um, game and condensed it down into into the text form um, I, I had to kind of limit myself as well because if I if I made it so that there was uh, a whole bunch of options there could be options on every page I wouldn't stop writing. Uh, as in like an unlimited number of options on every page, and I wouldn't stop writing. I had to make sure that I was able to get each of these done within a year. Right.
0: That makes sense. Th- that's just very interesting, I think, of like finding that inherent balance. Well, well, like, well, on your end of like time and work and then with the players end of like, we all know if all of a sudden you give a player a thing that they feel like they don't have agency in, you actively lose it quickly. But at the same time, you don't want to also like front-load all of your choices so when they hit the middle of the game, they go, wait, that was all of the choices I could actually make? So it's like, how do you find the line of like fooling the player versus like being honest without like losing them in, very quickly in the game? I think it's a very interesting choice always.
3: Yeah, it's, um, it's difficult because of, it, since... Um, so the, the people who got ha- their hands on the first version of the game, the, the first um, time they did so, there was only the critical path. Uh, and as I was adding side paths, they were they were kind of ignoring them. Mm-hmm. Now, when they got their hands on the second game, that one was fully written, all the paths in, and uh, so there wasn't an immediate uh, choice of solutions. They didn't just they didn't just know the answer. They were thrown into the maze, and I saw some very uh, interesting results from that. Uh, I, I sat down with a friend of mine from university who I hadn't seen for a while. Uh, we, we met up. Uh, a couple months back and i had my tablet with me and i let them run through book one and two and i sat there watching over their shoulder obviously i was hanging back i wasn't giving them any clues and just seeing how interesting it was that i was that they were coming up to choices that i thought were obvious and they were going nope, and taking uh, taking one of the the other side paths Now, normally there's there's uh you know, at the very least, there's a lot of... Uh, the vast majority of the pages give you at least two choices of how you're getting out there. There's not a lot of big strings of just hit next unless you have a wrong path and you should be seeing an option for actually you did something earlier so you can talk to this guy or you can use this object, but you didn't get them.
0: Hmm. Okay. You know,
3: So that, that will generally be where, you, where you're going to see a long string of uh, just hitting, hitting next. So you're going to be seeing these options otherwise. Um, and, but yeah, it, it's so weird to see people playing it and just going, it's obviously not the way you're supposed to go, but, but at the same time, trying not to say that.
0: Oh, I've done enough playtesting where, yeah, it's literally, like, I've learned, literally there are times when I'm, play, like, leading a playtest, I just go, here's the game, and they go, where are you going? I go, I go, just look at the camera, I, I just have to walk away, because I don't, like, it's this inherent nature of, like... But do the thing, or what do you think? Or try this thing. Like, you just want to pipe in.
3: Yeah, I mean, there was, um, th- there's two, uh, kind of, uh, uh that I, I remember from back at Jagex, uh, one of them was when we were doing a playtest for some executives uh, on Stellador, we had, uh, we had them running through one of the endgame raids. And one of the guy was, like, kept on complaining that he couldn't, um, he didn't know what was going on. And we were, t- we were giving him instructions and people were... The other teammates were yelling at him to do some stuff. And he was like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Turns out he refused to move the camera. <laughs> he-, he couldn't see anything that was going on. He was just... Um, he was just. St- he- 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 his camera was left in the exact same position as when he spawned. And uh, he was just kind of clicking roughly on the minimap. Uh, and obviously couldn't target enemies or any of this other kind of stuff so he had no idea what was going on during the boss fights
0: That's so interesting and this is like no offense because I'm going to stick the honest truth we need executives and business people in the games industry but they are the either, they are the best bug tester but the worst play testers in the world at the same time
3: Well I mean it, again it, it kind of depends because as the other people seemed to know what was going on that they were they were kind of pushing through
0: it maybe it depends but it very much I feel like I feel like if we get like because there's like two types I think of business people in the industry it's business people who came from business and business people who work their way up through games and I think it's the business people who came like external business people are the ones I always go you could you could play the game but it's like the feedback's always like this inherent grain of salt I have to take of like they're not my audience
3: Yes, definitely uh you yeah, because but there's there's definitely a kind of a, a divide in the mentality there.
0: Because mm-hmm. they're looking for like a certain thing is the reason they're playing at the time, but it's this thing I go, it's like it's not the like we know better either. I'm trying to come out that way, but it's the like in the moment I go, the problem I know you're having is I know the audience is not going to have because I can make inherent assumptions of like they can control a camera or like in your hand like some people like it even if they have double joysticks, it's like most people won't have that same issue that like someone who's not played games would
3: have kind of thing. I, um, that, that uh, reminds me of that, uh, quite, um, I don't know. I think it was a bit divisive at the time, that story of the games journalist who was playing Cuphead, <laughs> who was, uh, yeah, it was uh, kind of ignoring the, the message on screen of how to do the dash and w- was, was complaining about that. You know, if, um, there would be a lot of people. I mean, obviously, there, there are some gamers who would look at that screen going, What the hell am I supposed to do? I've got no idea, and, and quit the game, rage quit. But, um, you know, there, there is that mentality of a lot of gamers through it. A lot of the people who'd played the game, uh, either Stell Dawn or RuneScape, would know about the camera controls. A lot of people who played any MMOs, especially browser based ones, would know that there was some sort of camera control. So when you, people are yelling, um, shoot the monster and big explosions are coming in from off screen they would at least try and find some way to to turn the camera to find out why they're dying at any rate
0: mm-hmm. it's just always this interesting like line of of like how do we define this stuff and like who's playing and who do you want to, not who do you want to play it's who to like do we expect to play and that kind of stuff but kind of yeah. Back to this, kind of, as we get towards the tail end of this. I was curious. So, you released the first game, Pale Harbor, I'm going to say roughly a little under a month ago, and then you released Hunter's Journal, about a little a week away from recording this. So, I was curious, kind of, like, the feedback you received on these games, kind of, like, versus what you expected, and kind of, like, did it meet your expectations?
3: Oh, um, the, the, the main... So, I received uh, a chunk of feedback about the UI, Mm. Which uh, and some decisions that were made with that. Now, um, the main one is that effectively combat is not hugely interesting. Um, I had made uh, changes from the first to the second uh, book and further onwards to make it more interesting. Um, and th- there were some things that really can't be fixed without a UI rework. And I've sent this up the line. There were a handful of uh, decisions that, I lo- when, when I was called on them, I was like, that, that doesn't make sense uh, the biggest one was that previously uh, error messages mm-hmm. come on uh, the, the UI is laid out that uh, the the screen itself is the book so you've got the pages are open you've got text and you know pictures you've got little bookmarks and ribbons that you you took to go to the appropriate pages and um, on top of that your uh, UI for your character sheet and uh, little notes and additional stuff is pieces of torn off paper. Mm-hmm. and uh, you, when you got an error message, a little peer on the piece of paper and just kind of scroll into the screen and you could click on it to get rid of it and usually when people were playing it, when I'd seen them, they would tap that and it would go away.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And this actually kind of ties it ties into the, the thing which you were saying before and the person uh, who gave me the feedback was like, you know, I, I realised I could get rid of it but it was still quite intrusive um, and I started them Coming in at the bottom of the screen and working the way up to the top. So if you called in multiple ones, then you, they would kind of progressively get higher up the page. Mm-hmm. You scroll in, you'd get rid of them. If you didn't, then they would scroll back off the page. And uh, you know, they said, you know, it scrolls in very, very slowly. It's quite intrusive, and they hang around too long. So I looked at it again and thought, you know, what? yeah, they're exactly right about this, and reverse the whole thing. So now, when you get an error message, it. Same same UI element until we get an upgrade to it, but it pops in at the top of the screen, no scrolling, stays around for a couple of seconds, bang disappears, no no fuss, and you can still click to get rid of it if you want. So it, it's this kind of the the, the kind of stuff that I could take care of from my side. I got uh, got out of the way as quickly as possible. Uh, the stuff that requires UI sent over to Carlos, but uh, you know we'll we'll see what time he's got to be able to fix that, and when he does it'll be implemented into the games.
0: Nice. Well, that's very interesting, and I'm excited to see kind of like how the, this kind of series of games kind of evolves over time as you keep working on them. Um, I want to thank you for joining me for this, I think, fun discussion on games industry, your games, and all of that fun stuff. So the way i like to close this is so your game series is the Hunter's Journals. Uh, what is Vile bio- Philosophy? You think I'd be good at English because I'm going speak it? And the other is Pale sure. Harbor? Could you, so obviously you can find these games on Steam, any other place you want to pimp out your games, place to find uh, you or your studio?
3: Uh, yes, you'll be able to get, um, Pale Harbor is now back on the Google Play Store, uh, a period because of uh, some interaction between Unity and the, their storefront. While uh, Philosophy is going to be going up there uh, soon as well. Um, and as soon as I've got the, the time for it, I'm going to be trying to do an Apple build, but at the moment it's, it's steam and it's Google play. And uh, thank you for having me on. It's, it's been, it's been fun. Thank you very much.
0: Yep. And again, remember folks, you can find the SWW show. It seems like every couple weeks with some random stuff. Otherwise we have our normal podcast and movie club every single month. Remember me and my friend Dan are doing our borderlands podcasting up to borderlands three. Check those out all on the SWW feed. Remember you can find the hunters journals on steam and all google play store and hopefully one day the itunes store just maybe again thank you for all for joining us and have a good night everybody thanks this podcast was a product of the sww show you can find more at the sww show.com or facebook.com slash the sww store or twitter.com slash sww you can find out more about mike at Mikey underscore Maroney on Twitter, and more about AJ at c4 on Twitter. Remember, new episodes come out twice a month one focusing on the new entertainment news, and one focusing on Movie Club, so a new and an old movie. You can find out more again at the SWWShow.com, and you can find the show on podcast services around the globe.